That happened so seamlessly. You'd think I... Good evening and welcome to St. Thomas. Thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, we're extremely lucky to have as part of the Icons and Transformation exhibition that we're hosting now through August the 10th, Eric Temerick, who's joining us from the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. Um, Mr. Temerick is the senior docent and he is going to talk to us about the power of icons. Uh, and so I'm gonna let him talk about what he talks about and then a few announcements for you uh, following the program, but we're extremely grateful that um, Mr. Tremick came for our opening night, met our artist, got to hear from her perspective, and is now back to share what she's got prepared for us. So thank you. Yes, thank you very much indeed. Uh, first of all, I should say that I'm delighted to be with you this evening and delighted also to see that so many people are interested in continuing with the focus that Lyudmila Pavlovska has provided us with this wonderful exhibition of icons and transformation out here. I should rapidly say that senior docent, by the way, is a title that we have for old docents. So, uh, <laughs> so, so that for starters. And so I'm just delighted to share with you some thoughts that I put together that I hope you'll find or maybe helps the set the context for what Pavlovska has done here. It does take me back to an experience I had about 15 years ago uh, in Russia and also related to that in Greece, where I, in some Orthodox churches, I was walking through and noticed that things were kind of different. That where there was an icon or a, a work of art, and said, well, wait a minute, the people are not gathered around a work of art like we would gather around a work of art in the West, and like we do at the Museum of Fine Arts that, to, that Dan and I are from. Oh, I should introduce my colleague, Dan Flatten, who's here this evening. And he has promised me that he'll take all the hard questions when we get to the interaction part. So what I, what I noticed in these Orthodox churches was that uh, people didn't gather around the work of art the way I would have guessed they might, uh, but there was one person in front of a work. And then there was a gap of maybe a few feet, and then there was a line. So each person was doing their own personal connection with that, I'll say, work of art or icon, uh, much differently from what we tend to do in the West. And then when that person was finished, and they might be bowing or kissing, I mean, really relating closely to the work. And then when they finished, then the next one person came up. So something was clearly different. And that's part of what I tried to try to communicate with you about this evening. And when re reflecting on the power of the transcendence that the people are really after who are in the, the Orthodox culture. Does anyone here come from the Orthodox culture? Let me just ask that question. And so, so you all can help me also when we get to some parts here that, uh, because I want to just quickly acknowledge that, as you know, there's only so far we can go in speaking about a culture that we're not from. And so I just want to acknowledge that limit. And so you all can help me out on that, where, wherever I may need some help on that. Just uh, a little bit to start. Uh, not too many of us are, are completely familiar with the geography around Orthodox Christianity, uh, but this map indicates some key things about it. In the blue, the Eastern Orthodox um, populations, most heavily in Greece, and then Eastern Europe on up through the Ukraine, Belarus, and then on into Russia itself, and also over into Kazakhstan. And you'll see some very light shades of blue in other parts of the world, but just much smaller populations. And there's also the, the offshoot, at least on this chart, called Oriental Orthodoxy, mainly in Eritrea and, and Ethiopia, and a little bit more in Egypt. And you see a little bit of pink in some other parts of the world. So just to give a sense of that. Now, my understanding is that the Oriental Orthodoxy stayed with the full communion of Christianity up until about the fifth century, and then Eastern Orthodoxy uh, up through the eighth century with a major split occurring then at the Great Schism that occurred in 1054, um, based primarily upon arguments about what authority the Pope has or does not have. So just a few words of background on that that I'm sure many of you already know. I'd like to start with this image way back from the sixth century at St. Catherine, held at St. Catherine's Monastery at Mount Sinai in Egypt of Christ Pantocrator, meaning pan all and crater ruler, all ruler, all powerful. And with each of these that I'll show, just give you a few moments to look at it. You may fam be familiar with some of these. And some of uh, Pavlovska's images are also images of these works that I'll show. 
So here we see Christ with the New Testament in his left hand, <coughs> his right hand in the form of maybe prayer or teaching. The gold in the background, which is very common in these works for at least a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that we're really not in, in what we might say spa the space and time that we are in. We're really here, the suggestion is we're in the divine realm where there, there is no space as we think of it and where there is no time. And so the gold backgrounds instead of our traditional backgrounds such as landscapes is used in part to signal that. One other reason that gold is very helpful on many of these works is that often they were located in places that didn't have a whole lot of natural light and they did reflect whatever light there was very well. So just a more practical reason for it. The Christ Pantocrator image, I mean, I've often seen when I was in that part of the world, up in the top of a dome, if, you th if a building had a dome, it'd be right in the top or right on the edge of the top in a very, very prominent position overlooking everything else. In this image too, notice that there is no light being reflected from Christ's eyes like we would find often in paintings. And at least uh, the key thinking there is that, that Christ does not receive light, Christ issues the light. The light comes from him, from God, and therefore it's not shown in, in the image as reflecting on the eyes. It's also a very flat image suggesting the difference in space and after you look at this one for a while, and tell me if you agree, don't the two sides of his face look just a little bit different from each other, perhaps suggesting the, two, the human and divine nature as part of that? Wanted to show you another one from the sixth century, and we'll gradually move ahead in time. The, uh, also in the St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt, a much more complex one with many figures uh, <coughs> Mary and the Christ child, two saints, some angels in the background. So not all of these iconic images were as simple as the first one I showed. And then this one, depiction of the legend of King Abgaras. The image is done in the 10th century. So we've jumped past uh, several centuries here uh, in terms of when the images were done. And I should just mention that uh, there were also some major periods of iconoclasm in the 8th and the 9th centuries where, where the, the, the powers that be said, wait, wait, this is idolatry. We don't want to have idolatry. And then in various ecumenical councils, they addressed that. And then finally, in, in the 7th one, I think it was, the 7th ecumenical council, they said, no, 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 this is not idolatry. This is reaching to the divine person himself or herself. It's not worshiping that thing that might be in front of us. It's reaching to that person. And then it was, that was okay from there on. This one, though, reaches back to an, uh, one of the key traditions in Eastern Orthodoxy. And it's based upon this legend of King Abgaris, where the king was ill and he wanted some respite from his illness. He wanted to be cured. And so he sent Jesus a letter and Jesus sent a letter back saying, well, I can't come cure you right now, but I'll send somebody with something that will help. And I'm paraphrasing there, of course. Uh, and so as you can see here, he's holding a cloth with an image of, of Jesus on it. And then he was cured from that image on the cloth. And there are various slight changes or different, uh, let's say, versions of that story. But one of the keys is that this tradition ties back to, or that the tradition is called the image made without hands. And so Christ made the image on the cloth, uh, either by putting the cloth to his face or just by, by sending the image there, the image made without hands as the first icon. A very famous icon of which Pavlovska has several uh, variations of in what you have in the next room, the Theotokos of Vladimir, Theotokos, God-bearer. She is the bearer of God. It's called uh, from Vladimir because it was there for a couple hundred years, now in Moscow in the Trechikov Gallery. Have any of you been in the Trechikov Gallery in Moscow? If you get a chance to get there, it has a marvelous collection of iconic images as well as the more Russian Western images and so it's just uh, really worth a visit if, the, if that opportunity uh, reaches you. In this one we see Mary and the Christ child 
in a very tender pose with respect to each other. The, the paint is in not the greatest shape on this old one, as you can see. We see two stars on Mary, one on her left shoulder and one on her, her, uh, on her head. And there is a third star, no doubt, which is being blocked from her right shoulder because this is the symbol of her perpetual virginity. And, uh, and almost every time we see Mary in one of these images, we can find those stars. Some of the coloration uh, looks like it's really suffered from the ravages of time. Her hand and the Christ child's hand are both, both much darker in coloration than her face and his face. And I get, I'm suspecting it's just because of the, the coloration that, or the changes that you can see in the upper right, for example, where uh, some of it seems to have flaked off. Here's one that's not really an icon, but it intrigued me, and I thought you'd find it interesting, too. Um, this Ladder of Divine Ascent, which was actually a writing done about the year 600 by a writer named John Climacus, and it has one, uh, one step on it, in the, on this ladder, for each of the 30 years Christ lived. And I counted them, and there are actually 30, 30 rungs along there. And so we can see all of these people, I guess, representing us, trying to make, our, make their way up. You can see Christ, a small version of Christ, way at the upper right. There's some angels looking on from the upper left. There's a, a group of people down at the lower right also looking into at all of this going on. And on the ladder itself, well, many of the, the people seem to be managing okay, but yet some of them <laughs> seem to have a little more difficulty than others, kind of hanging off in various ways at the lower part of it. And also we have these winged creatures with bows and arrows and, and look like pikes or lances. And it doesn't look like they're helping the situation very much. It looks like they're uh, working on taking people in that other direction. Also in St. Catherine's Monastery in, um, in Egypt. Here a very famous one which you also find out in the, in, the, um, in the church area too, the Annunciation done from in the early 1300s. And here we see, we see the Virgin. You can just make out, they're a little dim, the three stars on her. Perhaps you can see those. And her left hand, she's holding a red skein of wool because the angel Gabriel has caught her while she is uh, weaving. And interestingly, her feet, the little red spots that you can see as her feet, these, this color for these slippers were, was reserved for the Byzantine royalty. Now the image out there, she has feet that are black. So I guess so there are some minor variations in these icons along the way. Uh, my understanding, and, and some of you correct me if you have better information on this, is that while on the one hand, the icons were really supposed to all reflect the prototype, the original, but, but, but some minor variations seem to be allowed along the way as a little bit of creativity on the part of the artist doing that. But then on the whole, they were really not encouraged to deviate uh, in, a, in a very significant way, unlike the artists from the West, which we'll talk about later and show some examples of. Also in here, I noticed when looking at this that, oh wait, we have, uh, we have Western-style perspective here. There's a fair amount of that. And so, well, wait, wait. I thought, oh, we're not in the divine realm yet. We're still on Earth. This is being announced to her on Earth, so perhaps that's okay. Remember the cloth on King Abgar's and Garrus's lap? This is the way that's often rendered as the image of the Savior made without hands, or at least two versions of this out front. This is called the Mandilion. You can see at the, at the bottom, this word right here is in Greek, Mandilion, which really means it's a small cloth. And here is Christ's face on the cloth, dark hair, hair parted, bearded, as usual with some interesting Greek letters around the halo, the little O at the top, an Omicron, and on the left, an Omega, and on the right, a Nu. And so that's Ha-On, he who is. 
also, on so many of these, you will see, although in this one it's a little vague, but right up there, it's something that looks like IC, and up there it looks like uh, XC, the first and last letters of Jesus on the left in Greek, the first and last letters of Christos on the right in Greek, Jesus Christos. So in many of the images outside, when you see what it looks like, IC and an XC, it's Jesus Christos. And then another key tradition in Eastern Orthodoxy is that, well, it maybe it was Luke, St. Luke himself, who did the first icons. And not only did he do them, he did them from the very people that he was doing the images of, so who would have great credibility and authenticity. And in this painting done uh, sometime, not clear exactly when, just pre-19th century, we see St. Luke with the help of an angel behind him actually doing what, what purports to be the first icon of the Theotokos of the Virgin and, and Child. Now I want to switch to the West, and in fact, uh, you may have noticed that all the images I've shown so far on the right, on the right-hand side of the chart, the eastern part of the chart. So just to help keep things straight for us, for the most part, with one or two exceptions, I'll try to put the Western ones on the left. This one's so big, even though it's Western, I put it in the middle so we could see it well. But a very different view of the Annunciation from the one we saw before. This from, some the, from the Uffizi. And we can see here, while we have the, the traditional key images in the center, uh, Mary holding a book in this case with an expression which really could be read as, well, I'm not sure how you'd put it in ordinary language today, but words come to mind like, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> um, and, and over here, the angel Gabriel holding an olive branch. Hard to see, but there's a dove just right through here. And there's also a stream of words going right across there. And it, they say, Ave gratia plena, hail full of grace, Dominus tecum, the Lord is with thee, going from angel Gabriel to Mary. But instead of the Eastern type image, we now also have all of this other included. Two saints on the right and left, four prophets up here in these circles. We have a, man, a mandorla, which is this kind of circle of, of uh, angels here. We have all of these Gothic spires and Gothic decoration. So just massively more complex and much less simple, much less directly on the topic at hand. And so when we look at them together, we just get a sense of, yeah, these are just fun two fundamentally different styles, the Western style and the Eastern style. Moving now to an image from our collection at the Museum of Fine Arts, wanted to share this one called the Master of the, by the Master of the Sienese Strauss Madonna called Virgin and Child. We have lots of gold again. We have a goldfinch, which shows up in many of the images since that represents the soul and its ability to fly off to heaven. We have this uh, relationship between the two there, which is not exactly the tenderest. It's a very stylized image and it really looks like a Byzantine image like a lot like an Eastern image might actually look. And I'll come back to this one a little bit later to compare it with another image a little later in time, this one being from about 1340. Also, just to give you a sense of it, another image by another Italian artist of the crucifixion, gold in the background, flat image, and again, in this time frame of the early, the early 1300s, we really do still have a lot of similarities between the Eastern and the Western styles of showing these images. One more from the West, actually both of these from the West, and they're, they're part of a triptych with the middle part missing, containing lots of saints and angels with halos and gold and 
pretty flat images, although there's a little bit of sense of depth. Some of them are identifiable. For example, St. Louis, Louis IX, you can see the fleur-de-lis on his costume here. Over here, St. Lawrence, it's hard to make out, but he's holding a grill here, and St. Lawrence was martyred on a grill. And some of the others, too, have particular characteristics where uh, we could go actually get some, uh, some specific identification of them. So again, some Western images that have some characteristics of the Eastern images. And a very important one, the Transfiguration, here the version of it done by Rublyov, that's now in Moscow. I'll give you a moment to just look at this. We have Christ at the upper center, as usual. We have Moses. We have Elias. We have this Mandorla surrounding him, kind of a source of light. The word Mandorla really means almond, and quite often these were almond-shaped, although they, they tend to show up here more as circles than almond-shaped. It's a little hard to make out, but Moses and Elijah are both standing on mountaintops, and Christ appears to be standing on a ridge there. And then down below, we have Peter, James, and John in all kinds of positions of uh, strange positions, maybe sleeping, but definitely ill at ease, perhaps wondering what's going on as this vision of Christ and the prophets now appears to them, Christ after the resurrection in all the brilliance that would go with his position in heaven at that time. So interesting to see how Rublyov puts this, does it illustrates this transfiguration in the other versions of this transfiguration icon, you see pretty much the same contents, maybe slight differences in the way that it's put together. And I wanted to compare this with, about from about 100 years later, Raphael's transformation. Which is in the Vatican Museums. And you can just see immediately how vastly different it is and how the West has started to deviate from the East quite a bit now in just the manner of doing this. The upper part of this transformation is very similar in content, though not in form, to Rublyov's version, where again it's Christ, and Moses, Elias, Peter, James, and John, and a somewhat different arrangement. Now they're kind of floating instead of being on mountaintops. And down below, another episode from the Bible where Christ here is pointing his finger at this youngster with his mouth open in order to relieve him of a demon who, could, who would then issue forth from his mouth with some disciples here, the family of the youngster over here, and this woman visually connecting the two groups. So in, so in a way, what Raphael is doing is pointing out the difference in these two realms, the, the high realm of brilliance and everything just terrific, and then the earthly realm where there's a light of, lot of controversy and disquiet as well. Also, if you look at the, the hand reaching out, doesn't that also remind you of the Sistine Chapel um, creation of Adam image? So if we look at these two together, we can see, although admitted it's a hundred years apart, but still this vast difference between the two. Another image from our collection of Virgin and Child, now from nearly 1400 of Madonna and Child. Again, the goldfinch, this time also a coral necklace to ward off evil spirits. A much tenderer relationship between the two, maybe almost a smile even. And importantly, as the Western style of painting advanced, you can see here some more rounded shapes, some more rounded skin with the highlights suggesting the modeling that, that, uh, that would characterize the way that the Western styles were advancing. Now, very hard to see, but let me just try in here here, in, in this red area, you probably can't, maybe there's one right there too, there is the phoenix represented oh, maybe six or seven times in there. 
signifying the resurrection since the phoenix rises from his ashes every now and then and goes through that sort of rebirth. And the reason I wanted to show this one is to put it in context with the other one, which is even more Eastern, even though it's done by a Western artist. So you can see how we've moved here from this very Byzantine, stylistic, kind of stark relationship here, very flat, to a much tenderer relationship, much more rounded, little bit of a sense of depth in the one on the left. So the styles here begin to diverge, just as the one, just as Raphael did too. Another really important icon that there's a, there's a version of uh, out by the altar as well, the, the Trinity, here the one version by Rublioff, also in the Trechikov Gallery. And so here we can see these three figures, strangers who were invited to the house of Abraham is the way that it's mentioned in the Bible. And up here we have the house of Abraham. But the strangers are really angels but they're not really angels. It's really God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father and God the Son have their wings kind of joined, showing the exceedingly close relationship there. On the other hand, these are three equals, in a sense, too, because they're all at the same level at the table. Although, God the Son and the Holy Spirit are both bowing toward God the Father, and this tree bowing toward God the Father. And this mountain is bowing toward God the Father. So uh, maybe it's a case of uh, primus inter pares, the first among equals. An icon that was discovered in 1919 in a dilapidated woodshed is this one. And so it's gotten some considerable positive notoriety since Christ the Redeemer, also in the Trechikov. Moving back to some Western images, this one by the famous Italian artist Fra Angelico, St. Anthony shunning the mass of gold. You can see St. Anthony, here's the mass of gold, which is really a demon in disguise, and so he's shunning the demon in disguise. Of note, though, stylistically, notice the depth we have the beginnings of real perspective here. It's not perfect. These, the angles of these buildings are a bit strange. And we also have monumentality in him, in this, in this area over here, back here. So the Western style of art is beginning to diverge more and more from the Eastern style. It's also diverged here as well, even though some aspects of these works by Giovanni de Paolo do remind us of the Eastern style, the gold, for example, the elaborate halo. But, we, but here, DiPaolo uses lots of curves as well, and unusually dim expression on St. John the Baptist here, not too happy at this point. This one by Giovanni DiPaolo, much happier, St. Catherine. Also the gold, also the elaborate halo and some very fancy clothing and curves in here that he was obviously having some fun with in his style of rendering her. Another Italian artist, Vivarini, Virgin and Child, the gold again, the halo again, Western image, but with many uh, reminders of the Eastern images. This one in a large triangular shape that was sometimes focused upon by many artists. Back to Giovanni de Paolo again, who tended to do things in extreme. St. John the Baptist looked extremely unhappy. St. Catherine looked extremely happy. And here we have this odd image, I think I'd have to call it odd, of St. Clair, whoops, go back. St. Clair here, rescuing a child mauled by a wolf. The, ch the wolf is already biting into the child here. And in, in the same scene, the wolf is now dead over here. But significant stylistically, look at the, the depth that he's trying to show here. He even has a grid in, in order to show that kind of depth and the beginnings of perspective. A Flemish artist now, image that now is beginning to be quite different. 
a nursing image. Very different in aspect in many respects. Shading, coloration, modeling from the Eastern images. And now, from the artist Pinturicchio, from our collection, we have Madonna and Child also nursing. But we also have John the Baptist here in the back. And way in the back, you can barely see St. Sebastian. And he got martyred with a whole sling of arrows, as you may recall. And he has the arrows. It's just a little hard to see from where you are in this image. But now, instead of a simple icon, we have a much more complex rendering of this figure by a Western artist. And then by another artist, Bugiardini, in the, in the High Renaissance. And if we didn't know who this was by and we just took a glance at it, we might think it's Raphael because it's so simple, it's this triangular shape, and it has this clarity of form, which Raphael is so known for. With some landscape, just enough to really fill the picture in, but not to take over. And then the last of these Western images where things are really changed now by the Spanish artist Murillo, Murillo. Again, the Annunciation, very different from the two Annunciation versions that we already saw. And I'll just let that speak for itself. See, I want to go to, in the interest of time, I want to go to here. What, what, what I'd like to just suggest is when we think about all of this and think about the way that we Westerners tend to experience art and the way that the Orthodox experience these icons that, I mean, it just seems that the experience itself is rather fundamentally different. And I've tried to capture a little bit of this here, and I'll be interested as we go into discussion and comment in a few minutes what you think of this. But in the West, obviously, we start with sensation and we apprehend some aspect of the work. And we analyze it, break it into parts. As we do that, we then start to put the parts back together again, synthesize it into a whole. We start to link with it. If it's a, it's a work that particularly touches us, we link with it in a personal way. We may incorporate some aspect of that into ourselves as we learn something from it. And maybe, maybe in at least some cases, we reach a sense of deep meaning or a sense of truth that we haven't had before. Whereas my sense of the orthodox experience, and some of you can help a lot again with that, but again, any of this starts with sensation, but it looks to me like it's essentially the immediate apprehension of the divine in the work and a personal unification that comes with that uh, essentially immediately and achieving of this sense of, of transcendence where the viewer participates in the transcendent world uh, with and through the image of the the person, which is not just an image, but actually represents much more really some aspect of that, of that divine person. And perhaps one way to just kind of wrap up um, the thinking on this, one way to think about the, the West is through this, this image of St. Thomas Aquinas done by Giovanni Bertucci in the High Renaissance in the early 1500s and how the truth comes to us in the West and how we experience it in the West and what form it takes. In this image, we have the cloud representing God up here. We have these emanations. Can you see those from the back? A little hard to see. These emanations coming to Aquinas' head. And then we have the idea, okay, it goes from the head to the hand, goes from the hand to the book, the Summa Theologica, no doubt and then the emanations from the book to the church. So we have it going this way. And we also have the, the idea that the form that this truth takes, I mean, while it can com be communicated in narrative form and is, and is communicated in artistic form and is, but the essence of it is in the Summa Theologica, really communicated most essentially in the form of statements, propositions about the Trinity, the souls, all the different things that Aquinas writes about in there. And so that form of truth is so typical for us in the West in the way that we approach things. Whereas in the East, if I may suggest this, though not being from the East, looking back at this Mandelian image, just the idea that 
the, the truth comes from this immediate reach to transcendence through the individual divine person who is represented in that image. And so that's the thought that I would, would offer you. And we'll come back to this one in just a moment at the, at the very end. But I'd like to just open it up for conversation, reactions, uh, comments, questions, tomatoes, whatever. Yes, in the back. I don't think it's, it's particularly clear then, I mean, although for in, in any culture, as you well know, Christ will be represented according to the people who are in that culture, and the coloration will tend to go along with that. Now, exactly the dates that that moves in that direction is not as clear, because in early Christianity, you had this, I mean, not, not exactly um, pasty white, but white, but maybe white with varying shades of darkness showing up. I don't have a specific date uh, with respect to your question. So well, certainly the European influence was significant, and if you have images from other, other parts of the world, I mean, you'll see the same phenomenon there. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't anyone have a better answer to that here? I'll welcome that. Yes? The Pantocrator? Well, let's see if we can get to that quickly. There is a little, yeah, some, somewhat, a little, little ambiguous perhaps, but that's, uh, that's quite a thing to notice. Thank you. He's suggesting that on his neck there's the image of a cross. Yes. No, this is, this is much, much more toward pasty white, shall we say. Yes. How do you see a? Oh, oh, that one. That that was a Western image. Uh, that was a Western image, and I I if you look at the whole painting and get a sense of it, it's clear that there's a flow, and that flow comes from the cloud, and that flow is a version of truth, and so. By, by inference, that has to be God. Uh, on that work, yes. It, yes, it, it does, it's not labeled God. And so, so from that, uh, the experts far beyond me have, uh, have looked at those kind of things. Well, that's clearly God in, in the sense of how he might be rendered there. Because quite, uh, cause it's very rare for God the Father to be rendered at all. And even, even in here, where we had God the Father in the Trinity, it was really an angel rendering God the Father. Yes? Yes, let me get to it. You see the little rays right there? So that's really what suggests something is coming from there. And he's holding a book, and we know what he wrote. And so, so with, with a reasonable amount of inference, we can, we can conclude what's happening there. Yes? 
Yeah, that she, she's asking, is there a history of, uh, of icons in, in Ethiopia for the group that was called Oriental in the earlier slide? I don't have images directly from there, so I can't answer you directly on that, unfortunately. Does anyone have image about, about that? Yes? The images t tend to be darker, representing, of course, the culture that's coming from there. So that is the phenomenon that we tend to see really around the world in, in the images, which is perfectly natural, of course. Yes? Oh, my sense of it is that you're absolutely right. There were there were certain rules about it and you'll notice in the icons I've shown here which relate to the icons that are out in the church that the idea is that they're all supposed to follow the prototype whatever the prototype was for that icon and it's not a whole series of icons of, of say the the Mandelian that is one icon the Mandelian and then you have these representations of the one icon or it's one icon of the Pantocrator and you have the different representations and the artists or craftsmen are not really supposed to deviate from that, uh, from that prototype or else it's not really the icon anymore. However, when you look at a group of those, you start to see a number of, I'll call it minor variations. The major figures are there, their placement is very similar, the feeling of the whole thing is very similar, um, and the, um, the changes that are made at least appear to me as rather, um, rather incidental to the whole. That's my sense of it, yes. My sense of it is that along the way, I mean, back in these early centuries, things were much, uh, much less clear, but um, something got declared the prototype. And then whatever got declared the prototype had to be followed as, the, as, as, as that icon continued to be represented in time. Uh, now, who knows what the first Pantocrator was or what the first Theotokos was? We, we, I mean, it's hard to ever tell. And here you have these two ancient traditions, one that St. Luke did the first icons, one that Christ did the first icons. So you have this vague period back there to deal with. But at some stage, uh, something got accepted as the prototype. And so if you compare what I've shown to what's out there, you say, yeah, that's basically the same icon, few little variations. Yes? Rublioff. That's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure, but he was certainly aware of the way that the transfiguring—excuse me—the <coughs> transfiguration was getting represented, because the upper part of what Raphael did has everything in exactly the same position that the others do. So, um, whether he was aware directly of Rublioff's image or of other images that look very much like it, one of the two almost certainly had to be true. Yes. What, what I've read is that the earliest known ones were from about the fifth or fourth century, that there might have been some in the third, but the, the references there get to very vague indeed. And the earliest ones I could find a representation of were these ones in the St. Catherine Monastery that I showed you at the beginning. And perhaps the reason they are still there and didn't get caught in the iconoclasm of the later centuries was that they're in such a remote and forbidding location. Yes. They are like true icon, very icon. Yeah, so that's that's very interesting. And um, there is s some kind of crosser there over there. Yes, indeed. Yes.
I, I think it's a couple of things. One is that the, the Eastern art, which really didn't change, um, was, um, as you had suggested earlier, I mean you're tied into the rules. Whereas in the West, each artist coming along, especially at the time of the Renaissance, was able to say, oh, it doesn't have to be exactly that way. I can do something more creative here. I mean you had Michelangelo coming in doing things differently. You had all of this learning that was occurring. You had the printing press that was now available as of the 1400s to exchange ideas. And so all of this put together that led to the, the Western Renaissance um, tended to give, give energy and fuel to all of these differences and changes. Part of it, too, if you think about perspective, uh, where people said, wait a minute, these images don't have what we know as perspective. And so Brunelleschi and others came along and said, oh, here's how you can do perspective. Here's how you can do depth. Here's how you can do modeling and make things look rounded. And so there were no prohibitions uh, such as those which were more present in the Eastern Church, at least with respect to the icons. I think all of those things together. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good question because what Lyudmila um, Pavlovska has really done was taken these traditions, and on the one hand, she has honored the tradition by having a dozen or so of the traditional ones out here, all of which were done by a, a particular monastery in Russia, by the way. And then at the same time, in with her term icons and transformation, she's done some com something completely different with that, with a lot of emphasis on, <coughs> on eyes, <coughs> but also on, on other things such as the crown of thorns and the other images you see. <coughs> so one thing I wish I could ask her is, um, what reaction have you gotten from Orthodox groups with respect to what you've done here? Has it been accepting or has it uh, perhaps not been accepting? That's uh, just a major step out in the contemporary direction, which, uh, which I think is great, but maybe not everyone agrees with that. Yes. And very exacting, yeah, but the with well, images going forward and scripture going forward. Well, I, I would say we could draw a parallel between the Eastern images going forward and scripture going forward in that the idea was really not to change it. The idea was to do it maybe clearer, maybe better, possibly in some cases, obviously, translation into another language, but not to rewrite it. And so, so uh, you do bring to mind that part parallel or the Eastern part of this. The Western part, of course, uh, the idea was to, as of the Renaissance at least, start to change things. Yes. I, I believe that's the case. I don't know of exceptions to it. If any of you do, please let us know because that's, okay, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead and speak to it, Frank. Yes, in the front. Oh, interesting. Did everybody hear her? She's talking about the, the uh, icons that were actually embroidered and were accepted as embroidered icons throughout the years. Thank you for that. Anything else? I'd like to do just one more thing before we before we break, and that is invite you.
come to the Museum of Fine Arts. Here are some of the things that we have happening now. Through only one more week, the Michelangelo exhibition. Have some of you seen, number of you seen that one? Highly recommend a visit there if you can do it within the next week. A marvelous, beautiful exhibition of the Royal Arts of Jodhpur, India. One that's with us for a good while now, Arts of Islamic Lands <coughs> from the Al-Sabah Collection in Kuwait. One that's not on this list that's just opened, something called Hidden Layers. Now what is behind the painting we think we're seeing? Is there another one behind it? Is there another one behind that? What are the artists marked? How, how many different times did the artist try to place this where it was before their mind changed? And a couple of coming ones, one that's uh, in construction now. Every summer in the big area when you walk into the law building right in front of you, there's something participative every summer. And this summer it's something called Big Bamboo. And right now there are, has anyone, any of you seen that yet? Have you seen it? I mean, thousands of sticks of big, I mean, big bamboo sticks which are put together and somehow, and we can't tell yet looking at it, there will be a way to walk through it or up it or down it with a waiver signed even. <laughs> and so that'll be fascinating as soon as it's ready, which should be, what does it say here, June, it's again, maybe another week before it's ready for the rest of us. And something else called a Joris Lahman lab designed in a digital age. If you're interested at all in things like 3D printing, think about the impact of things like 3D printing on the entire field of decorative arts. And that's what this lab will be about. So just wanted to invite you to some of those uh, events that we have coming up. And uh, the uh, information on, on coming, I'm sure, I'm sure most of many of you go anyway, but if you'd like to come sometime, uh, Amy has my contact information and we'd be happy to have you come as a group. You could contact me. I could put you this in touch with the right people. You could come in groups on your own. I mean, any way you would like. We just hope that we will see you there sometime in the near future, especially Michelangelo, one more week. So thank you all for the discussion this evening. I appreciate it very much. My, my colleague, Dan, will be passing out some ev little evaluation forms. If you wouldn't mind just scratching a few words on there so we give you a sense of how this went over, we'd appreciate that. Thank you. And can we give another hand to Eric Kimmerich for coming down? Really grateful. Really grateful. I'm getting ready to invite you to the most exciting part, which is the reception. Uh, <laughs> before I do that, I just wanted to make a few comments about the exhibition. Of course, you're invited to interact with it now. And um, just, just to, uh, and there's a few other specific ways that you can choose to interact with our exhibition. Uh, there are booklets available in the hallway. We have regular docenting times every Saturday and Sunday and first Wednesdays. Beyond that, we can have a docent here anytime you would like to have a group come. And we just do that by arrangement to make sure we don't burn out our volunteer docents. Um, we're always happy to come if we know you'd like to be here. Um, so please do take time to enjoy these. Uh, in the exhibition itself, there are 15 uh, traditional Russian Orthodox icons, uh, some of which have more than 100 layers of paint. And if you choose to interact with these, I, I really would encourage you to move across them. And if you pay careful attention, you will see, you will see the topographical variants of a 100th layer of paint. You'll see shadows move across the icon, and, and that's because certain features are, are depicted through very thin layers. It sounds like I'm making that up, but I, but I promise you'll see it. Ludmilla allowed me to touch one, and you can feel, for example, the Virgin Mary's facial features with your finger. I don't know if you should do this, um, <laughs> but you can feel them, and interestingly enough, then you can also see them. A um, cu couple other things. I, I you, um, wanted to share if it's okay. This is maybe abusive of me. Thi thi this gesture actually, somebody asked about Ethiopic gestures um, or, or Ethiopic icons that tradition does exist. This is a Western um, gesture though. You won't find it in an Ethiopic icons because these stand for the two natures of Christ. These stand for the Trinity, three and one, and five fingers are the five wounds of Christ. In, in, e in the Ethiopic tradition, Jesus doesn't have two natures. 
they're a monophysite church. So just for example, you would never find Jesus making this gesture in an Ethiopic icon. Um, ever notice that the Pope holds his hands like this? And, and that's when he does blessings, that's what he's blessing you with, are the two natures of Christ and the Trinity and the five points. Um, I did want to, I wanted to know, we, we had um, an iconographer in residence named Kara Nelson come at the very beginning of the exhibition, and she wrote this icon for us. This is a contemporary, and um, this is a Byzantine icon, I'm sorry, um, Station of the Cross 13. And what she told us is really interesting is that iconographers never copy. They recreate, and that's the appropriate word, they recreate. And Kara, um, did a little bit of what Mr. Timrak talked about. It wasn't artistic license, it was actually a theological attention. So based on uh, the icon she was recreating, she made a few differences. One is that she made the sky black uh, because this depicts the hour of descent in which darkness filled the land according to the scripture. So she made the sky black. The other is that she added in to, this, uh, to the, the type the skull and crossbones in the bottom, that came from another uh, icon. So that is in the iconic tradition, but not from the one she recreated. So she wove two together. Interestingly enough, that's Adam. Those are the bones of Adam, the first human being. So when you hear the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, it's Adam's skull. Jesus being the new Adam is crucified on the grave of Adam. That, that goes the tradition. I'm not sure that's historically accurate, but, <laughs> but that, that is the tradition. So it's interesting to see the, the, the weaving in by iconographers who are very intent on preserving tradition and how they recreate images, if that makes sense. This is a lovely one. And um, one other opportunity, well, there's two other main opportunities to interact with the icons beyond coming on Docented Tours. One is that on July 7th, um, Ron McFarlane, who is a Grammy-nominated lute player, arguably the best lute player in the world, uh, not, not kidding, uh, is coming to put on a concert here at 6.30 in the evening. That's a Saturday night, 6.30 in the evening. Ron um, will play in our sanctuary in the presence of the icons. I curiously enough, the artist's husband, her, his name is Jan, was a lute player. <laughs> so uh, so in, the, in, in the spirit of lutes and what they do for art, Ron will be here July 7th. And the last major opportunity is that Kara will be back along with Teresa Harrison to lead an icon writing workshop at the beginning of August. That's an opportunity for anyone to, we don't say paint, to write, which means paint, their own icon over a week. It's a week-long retreat. So whether you choose to do that or not, you do have the opportunity to come and observe the workshop in progress uh, and to observe the layers upon layers and techniques and certainly to celebrate uh, the icons that are recreated at the end of the week on the Friday. So that's August the 6th through 10th. There are some spots still available uh, if you're interested in that activity as well. Uh, we'd love for you to view this. W I don't have it on display yet because I don't know where to put it. <laughs> um, it. It will live in the church when the, when, when the exhibition's over, but, but for now it uh, isn't clear that it's not part of the exhibition. It's, it's not. Um, on behalf of St. Thomas, thank you for coming. I hope you have enjoyed the icons. I hope that you, and uh, the contem contemporary ones as well. Uh, there's one other one worth mentioning, the only one in this room to your right. Those are the productions of our day school students. So we have a day school here, ages uh, pre-K three through fifth grade, and this was their reaction to the eyes of the icons. So each student, the bottom one are kindergartners, um, produce their own eyes, and then we've curated them here um, for your enjoyment. Uh, thank you for joining us this evening. Please enjoy uh, the icons, the um, Ludmilla's contemporary work. Take time to say uh, special greetings and thank yous to Mr. Timrick, and please enjoy some um, fine wine and food. You are welcome, with extreme caution, to bring your beverages as you look at the icons in the sanctuary. You are welcome to do that. Um, be careful, mind you, but you're welcome to do it, and I uh, hope you enjoy your, your evening. Yes, ma'am. Ludmilla and Jan are coming back uh, August the 18th, so the exhibition runs to the 10th, will be taken down the 11th, and then Ludmilla and Jan will be packing it up beginning on the 18th to take to Fayetteville, North Carolina.
because she'll be here all week and is very open, um, very open to visitors as well. So if you choose to come talk to Ludmilla and ask her about the art or say, hey, I really appreciate uh, what you've created here, August the 18th through the 22nd is the week she'll be here preparing it for Fayetteville, North Carolina. And, and that's an open opportunity for you as well. It'll all be wrapped up, but she'll be here if that makes sense. Uh, thank you and please enjoy uh, yourselves the rest of the evening.